1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: Great. Well, welcome everybody to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, we are here today to talk about nationwide injunctions, that is, injunctions that are issued by federal court judges that extend beyond the immediate parties to the litigation and beyond the geographic bounds of that court's mandate. Although nationwide injunctions have certainly been issued against other administrations, most notably, for instance, a federal judge in Texas uh, issued a nationwide injunction against the Obama administration when it attempted to implement its ADAPA program, There has been a dramatic increase in the issuance of nationwide injunctions during the Trump administration. Nationwide injunctions, which invariably are sought by politically motivated groups and officials in cases that are filed before sympathetic judges, are used to stop or at least condition the operation of national government policies. But are such injunctions proper or constitutional? In his concurring opinion in the travel ban case, Justice Clarence Thomas noted that such injunctions are of relatively recent vintage in our nation's history and that, quote, they appear to be inconsistent with long-standing limits on equitable relief and the power of Article III courts. The other members of the Supreme Court were not inclined to address the legality of nationwide injunctions in that case, but they may very well do so in future cases perhaps soon. We have assembled today an outstanding group of speakers to consider the legality and propriety of nationwide injunctions. We will first hear a keynote address from Beth Williams, who is currently serving as the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Office of Legal Policy at the Justice Department. A graduate of Harvard Law School, Beth clerk for Judge Richard Wesley on the Second Circuit and also served as Special Counsel at the Senate Judiciary Committee where, among other things, she assisted with the confirmations of Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito to the Supreme Court. Immediately prior to her appointment to OLP, Beth was a partner in the litigation and appellate sections of Kirkland and Ellis, where, among other things, she received the firm's pro bono service award seven years in a row for her dedication to pro bono work. Beth, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you so much, John, for the kind introductions and for the work that you do, and uh, thank you all for being here. I also want to thank the Heritage Foundation for putting together this event on a timely and important topic, Nationwide Injunctions. I'm very happy to be here today. I think that many people are glad that the shutdown is over, not least of which should be you all, because had this event occurred a couple of weeks ago, I would have had to, by law, write my own jokes. And I think no one, no one wants that. Um, before the panel dives into the substance of this issue, I'll take a few minutes to set the stage. Uh, it's no secret that the Department of Justice opposes the issuance of nationwide injunctions. But why is that? And how does this issue intersect with my work there? I left private practice in 2017 to serve as the Assistant Attorney General leading DOJ's Office of Legal Policy. One of OLP's core functions is policy development and coordination for the Department of Justice, especially on issues that are top departmental priorities. And one priority of this Department of Justice from day one has been upholding the rule of law. From our strong criminal enforcement, especially on issues like human trafficking, to ending settlement payouts to third party favored groups. That were not directly harmed by unlawful conduct, to our leadership on regulatory reform, you've seen time and again that this department has made great strides in promoting the rule of law. And I know that momentum will continue when we welcome our new Attorney General. OLP has had the opportunity to be deeply involved in those efforts. A major initiative through which the department is promoting the rule of law is our work shining a spotlight on and arguing against nationwide, which are sometimes called universal or limitless or Justice Gorsuch called them cosmic uh, injunctions. This is a rule of law issue, and this is why we care so much about it at DOJ. Nationwide injunctions, as we define them in the Justice Department, are injunctions that grant relief to parties outside the case and outside of the class action framework when such relief is not necessary to redress the plaintiff's injuries. The core problem, in other words, is not so much the geographic scope of the injunction, but it's reached far beyond the confines of the case or controversy before the court. Injunctive relief should be no broader than necessary to provide complete relief to the parties. The entry of nationwide injunctions is a relatively recent phenomenon. Nationwide injunctions did not exist even 60 years ago. Before 1963, no court in this country had issued such a broad injunction, and they were exceedingly rare until President Reagan took office. Even after that, by Department Department of Justice estimates, courts issued an average of only 1.5 nationwide injunctions per year against the Reagan, Clinton, and George W. Bush administrations, and 2.5 per year against the Obama administration. In President Trump's first year in office, however, judges issued a whopping 20 nationwide injunctions, an eight-fold increase. This matches the entire eight-year total of such injunctions issued against President Obama during his two terms. We are now at 30, matching the total number of injunctions issued against the first 42 presidents combined. At the Department of Justice, we believe that the proposition that courts must limit relief to the parties before them is non-controversial. Every Justice Department for decades has recognized it. The Obama Justice Department repeatedly argued that, quote, a trial court abuses its discretion by fashioning an injunction which is overly broad that injunctive relief should be no more burdensome to the defendant than necessary to provide complete relief to the plaintiffs before the court, and that this rule applies with special force where there is no class certification. This Justice Department has challenged the entry of nationwide injunctions on constitutional as well as equitable grounds, and we will continue to do so at every appropriate opportunity. Why? For several reasons. We believe that the erosion of our rules and norms by those duty-bound to uphold the law is always a serious concern. And we believe that the rash of nationwide injunctions strikes at the heart of our democratic system. A nationwide injunction seriously impedes decision-making in the federal courts by interfering with percolation of a contested legal issue. It also invites unvarnished judge shopping, undermining faith in our judiciary, and allows unelected district court judges to issue wholesale vetoes on the domestic policy and national security decisions of our elected officials. I'm sure that some or all of these issues will be discussed in more detail by our panelists today. Again, this is not a partisan problem. It can be and has been used against presidents of both parties. But the frequency with which it has been employed against this president is unparalleled. Justice Thomas, in his concurring opinion in Trump v. Hawaii, issued last June, offered his view that, quote, these injunctions, nationwide injunctions, are beginning to take a toll on the federal court system for, se- for several of the reasons I've just mentioned. He suggested that nationwide injunctions are, quote, legally and historically dubious, and urged his colleagues that, quote, if federal courts continue to issue them, the court is duty-bound to adjudicate their authority to do so. The Justice Department agrees. Our litigators are taking every opportunity to raise the question of the legality, legality of nationwide injunctions to the appellate courts and ultimately to the Supreme Court. In furtherance of the Department's commitment to advocating for properly tailored injunctive relief, Last fall, former Attorney General Sessions issued litigation guidelines for Department of Justice attorneys involved in litigation challenging a federal government program, regulation, order, or law. This memorandum outlines a series of arguments against the issuance of nationwide injunctions, many of which I'm sure will be discussed today. Its purpose is to ensure that DOJ litigators make strong, consistent, and principled arguments against nationwide injunctions in cases that present the possibility of overbroad injunctive relief armed with the guidelines and with no shortage of opportunities to put them into practice in litigation the department of justice will continue to pursue judicial recognition of the legal and equitable limits on injunctive relief in closing it is worth recalling james madison's speech to the virginia ratifying convention of 1788 there he said quote there are more instances of the abridgment of the freedom of the people by gradual and silent encroachments of those in power than by violent and sudden usurpations. Starting in the 1960s, we have seen a new power invented and slowly employed. It has now reached alarming frequency. The fact that both the Obama and Trump administrations have spoken with one voice should speak volumes. In the meantime, the debate about the propriety of nationwide injunctions continues. I'm looking forward to a robust robust discussion this afternoon. Thank you again for having me.
2: Now let me introduce our other speakers. Uh, I will be keeping their introductions short, very short, shorter than each one deserves so that you have more time to hear from them and not from me. First, we are going to hear from my colleague, Hans von Spikowsky, a graduate of Vanderbilt Law School. Hans is a senior legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Prior to coming to Heritage, Hans held a number of positions, including as special counsel in the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice and as a federal election commissioner. A frequent public commentator, Hans is also the co-author of two books with John Fund, Who's Counting, How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk, and Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Next, we, were hear- we, will-, yeah, me. we will hear from Alan Trammell. Alan is an assistant professor of law at Arkansas University School of Law, where he teaches civil procedure, federal courts, and conflicts of laws. Prior to that, Alan taught at Columbia Law School and at Brooklyn Law School. A graduate of the University of Virginia Law School, Alan also clerked for Judge Stephen Williams of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and Judge Theodore Marin of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague. And finally, we will hear from Michael Morley, who is an assistant professor at Florida State University College of Law, where he teaches election law, constitutional law, remedies, and federal courts. Upon graduating from Yale Law School, Michael clerked for Judge Gerald Joe Flatt of the 11th Circuit. Prior to joining the faculty at FSU, Michael taught at Barry University School of Law and also served in a number of positions, including at the Pentagon as a special counsel in the Army's Office of General Counsel. Hans? Uh,
3: I'm going <clears> to <throat> talk from here, John. Um, look, what this all boils down to is one question. Uh, What is the legitimacy of an injunction issued by a federal district court against the government in a lawsuit that is not a class action lawsuit, that has nationwide application to individuals who are not even parties to the lawsuit? Uh, As everyone has said, um, this is a relatively recent phenomena, and in fact, uh, it violates Supreme Court precedent. There is a Supreme Court decision I haven't heard talked about a lot, and the district courts that have done this last few years always seem to ignore this decision and don't talk about it. It's a case called U.S. versus Mendoza. Uh, in Mendoza, a Filipino national and a veteran of the battle for the Philippines during World War II petitioned for naturalization under a statute that, uh, by its own terms, had expired 32 years before. The lower courts refused to allow the government to basically defend the case and contest the issue. Why? Well, because there had been a prior adverse decision on the same issue, on the same statute, involving different plaintiffs uh, in a different federal district court that the government had not appealed. The Ninth Circuit held that the government was collaterally estopped, which is an important legal term, from relitigating this constitutional issue. but the Supreme Court held that uh, when you're when you have litigation involving the government that is very different than litigation involving private parties, and that in fact, the doctrine of collateral estoppel does not apply to the federal government. Uh, the government's not the same as a private litigant, said the court, both because of the geographic breadth of government litigation, and also most importantly, because of the nature of the issues the government litigates. Now, i want to give you a quote. It's a little bit long, but I think it really explains this. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist said this, Government litigation frequently involves legal questions of substantial public importance. Indeed, because of the prescriptions of the United States Constitution are so generally directed at governmental action, many constitutional questions can arise only in the context of litigation to which the government is a party because of these facts the government is more likely than any private party to be involved in lawsuits against different parties which nonetheless involve the same legal issues if you applied the collateral estoppel doctrine uh, doctrine to the government he said it would quote substantially thwart the development of important questions of law by freezing the final the first final decision rendered on a particular legal issue. Allowing only one adjudication would deprive the Supreme Court of the benefit it receives from permitting several courts of appeals to explore a different question before it grants certiorari. Thus, the government, quote, is not further bound in a case involving a litigant who was not a party to the earlier litigation. That means the government has the ability to continue to apply its regulations, policies, and executive orders to individuals including aliens, who are not parties to specific lawsuits uh, contesting the government's actions. Unfortunately, as I think you all heard, the Supreme Court ignored this issue in large part and did not faithfully apply this precedent in its 2018 decision in Trump versus Hawaii, even though the government basically won the case on the substantive issues involved. Um, Justice Thomas chided the court for not paying attention to this issue in his concurring opinion, where he said this district courts, including the one here, have begun imposing universal injunctions without considering their authority to grant such sweeping relief. These injunctions are beginning to take a toll on the federal court system, preventing legal questions from percolating through the federal courts, encouraging forum shopping. Uh, and making every case a national emergency for the courts and the executive branch. Nationwide injunctions obviously provide an incentive for extreme forum shopping, uh, rewarding plaintiffs who steer cases to specific circuits, specific districts, and even specific judges. Now, while steering a lawsuit to a particular federal judge may not be possible in large federal districts, it's very possible in district court divisions where there may be only one judge or a very small number of judges. And I have to tell you that such forum shopping will raise serious questions in the minds of the public about the objectivity, bias, and partisanship of the judges chosen by plaintiffs because the judges are viewed as holding a particular ideological and political view that will benefit the plaintiffs, which I think, unfortunately, will encourage public doubt about the legitimacy of judicial decisions. Now, while nationwide injunctions may be appropriate when applied to specific individuals who are before a particular court, it's not appropriate for individuals who are not parties to the lawsuit and certainly not to unnamed, unknown individuals like aliens nationwide who have no right to be in the United States except under very limited and very narrow circumstances. Now, one of the ways a court can grant a nationwide injunction is through a class action lawsuit. Congress has provided for that in Civil Rule of Procedure 23, which outlines the requirements for a federal court to um, certify a class action. But the federal courts that have been issuing nationwide injunctions have been doing so by ignoring Federal Rule 23, and not going through the process of certifying a class action. I think that raises serious and substantive legal questions and ethical issues about the judges involved. We would not be having this problem with improperly issued nationwide injunctions if federal courts followed the Mendoza precedent, the judgments against the government do not bind non-parties, or complied with the class action rules of, of Federal Rule 23. But federal rules are now routinely routinely ignoring these legal requirements. Now, another problem you, we have with this is if five or six different lawsuits are filed in five or six different jurisdictions, and they issue decisions that are exactly competing, we have this uh, huge conflict in the federal courts uh, that can cause all kinds of problems. Um, One way that this could be resolved, in addition to just following the Mendoza precedent, would be to put in a rule, Congress would have to do this, to say that if you are filing a lawsuit against an executive order, for example, of the president, that lawsuit can be only filed in the District of Columbia. And for anyone who thinks that would be unusual, there is precedent for this. Under Section 5 of the uh, Voting Rights Act, Uh, It set up a system where if you were going to contest a um, position that the Justice Department had taken on pre-clearance of a voting change in rules or regulations, you had to file it in the District of Columbia, where the Justice Department is located, and it was assigned a three-judge court. Uh, Another possible remedy is to change the standard of review. Uh, The recognized standard of review by appellate courts is abuse of discretion. Uh, Changing this to de novo review for cases that issued a uh, nationwide injunction could provide a Court of Appeals more leeway to overturn them. Of course, that might not remedy the problem if the appellate judges don't recognize the legal and equitable principles that exist on granting such injunctions, which is exactly what the Ninth Circuit mistakenly did when it upheld the injunction in the uh, Hawaii uh, versus Trump case. Uh, in conclusion, uh, I quote again, Justice Thomas, who said, in some, universal injunctions are legally and historically, historically dubious. And the warning about this dangerous development that I think everyone needs to keep in mind is one that Justice Samuel Alito recently gave in a redistricting case, Cooper v. Harris, that I think also applies here. Allowing federal district courts to engage in this kind of behavior will, quote, invite the losers to seek to obtain in court what they could not achieve in the political arena. And that is a danger to the rule of law and a democratic system and its essential separation of powers. Thank you.
4: Thank you all very much. This is my first opportunity to be at Heritage. I'm absolutely delighted to be with my panelists, and in particular, with my friend Michael Morley, who's essentially been my sparring partner on this issue for most of the last year. Um, I think that you might think of my role here as the liberal punching bag. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit to, to complicate that perception a very, very little bit. Um, first, by starting out with some important points of commonality that most of us have. And I know that, that Michael and I certainly share in common. Um, and then I want to talk about uh, where we might potentially part ways in terms of how we conceptualize a nationwide injunction. So first of all, and this is no mean feat in the modern era, I think that we share a common language about this, and we have a sense of the problem. That is to say, we are dealing with cases in which there is not class certification, cases in which relief is redounding to the benefit of people who are not parties, that relief is redounding to their benefit quite intentionally, and it's not even necessary to fully vindicate the rights of the actual plaintiffs before the court. Okay, so that's our problem. Uh, Michael has very helpfully dubbed this a – correct me if I'm wrong here – a non-class defendant-oriented injunction. Right. So um, it is focused not necessarily on remedying the plaintiff's injuries, but instead on prohibiting the defendant from engaging in what the court has deemed to be unlawful conduct anywhere or against anyone. Okay. Okay. So that's number one. Number two, I think that we largely agree on the fact that these are a bad idea in the overwhelming majority of cases. As Hans was just saying, they can freeze the law in place, they can prevent percolation, they can incentivize form shopping, it can lead to inconsistent obligations on the part of the government. All of this is a bad idea. And it does reward enterprising plaintiffs who might choose particularly favorable judges. And again, this has been going on um, in, in both administrations. You have people challenging the Obama administration regulations and um, and policies in the Eastern District of Texas. You have people um, challenging Trump administration policies overwhelmingly going to courts in the Ninth Circuit. So that's our our second commonality, recognizing that overwhelmingly these are a bad idea. And the third one is one that, that Michael and I might share in common, and perhaps Hans and I would part ways on this, and that is the idea that a class action is not a panacea to the problem. Michael and I have both written about this. Now, it's true that if you go through proper class certification procedure, that is an opportunity to try to figure out whether the plaintiffs or the would-be plaintiffs, the people who would benefit from a sweeping injunction, indeed do have commonality, whether they are indeed similarly situated, and whether they should be treated alike. All of that is true, and that would be a benefit if we were to use the class action device more readily. What it does not solve, though, is the problem of freezing the law in place and preventing percolation. Think, for instance, about a fairly recent case from the Southern District of California. This is Ms. L versus ICE. You had a federal judge who certified a class, a nationwide class, of persons who were challenging the Trump administration's family separation policy. So you have one judge who's taking control of this case nationwide. Again, it's potentially freezing the law in place based on the decision of one lower court judge. It's preventing percolation. And and it's leading to all of these things that we worry about in a non-class nationwide injunction case. So while class actions can be beneficial, they are not the solution. Rule 23 is not the savior here. All right, so that I think is at least uh, some partial commonality. What are the differences that we might have? Um, I want to highlight two. Number one is the constitutional issue, and number two is to think about a, a fairly small number of cases in which a nationwide injunction might in fact be desirable. All right, so thinking about the constitutional issue. Um, normally, we think that in order to be able to litigate a case in federal court, you have to point to a live controversy. You have to have a plaintiff who not only demonstrates standing through an injury in fact, but also standing to pursue a particular remedy. All right, consider the challenges to the Obama administration's deferred action program. You have the state of Texas that said, we have been injured we've got a live controversy and we've been injured because we actually have to pay money because of people who are in this country illegally. And in particular, they said we have to issue driver's licenses and that costs money. Um, I, I give credit to a former colleague of mine at my law firm who's now on the Fifth Circuit, Andy Oldham, who came up with that brilliant argument. So Texas alleged an injury, in fact. Moreover, they said that it was a continuing injury. So they had standing to pursue prospective relief, that is to say an injunction. So Where's the constitutional problem? You've got a live controversy, a plaintiff with standing, and continuing injury, thus standing to pursue an injunctive remedy. Well, I think the opponents of nationwide injunctions would say, they would reframe it slightly, and they would say, look, it's not enough that you simply point to a live controversy or that, that you point to a plaintiff who has standing. Fundamentally, the judicial power of Article Three of the Constitution is defined in terms of dispute resolution that is to say that a court has power to resolve a very dis- a very specific dispute between two parties that the court accords a judgment a has to pay b money for instance and that that judgment is binding only on the actual parties to the lawsuit so in the absence of class certification it can't be binding on somebody who is outside of that lawsuit the problem is that this is a historical the dispute resolution conception of the judicial power is incorrect if we're thinking about it as a definition of the judicial power. It is instead an attribute of the judicial power, probably the single most important attribute of the judicial power, but it, it does not define that power. And we can see this going back to the inception of the Republic. Think about Marbury versus Madison. John Marshall said it is, it is the power of the court to declare the law. And he did that in a case where the court didn't have jurisdiction. I can only imagine the dissent that Justice Scalia would have written if he had been on the court at that time, announcing all of these, uh, these thoughts on the law and the power of judicial review when you don't have jurisdiction. You can think about um, friendly lawsuits. Plessy versus Ferguson is an infamous and famous example where there was essentially collusion to contest a segregation statute in Louisiana. Everybody wanted the same thing. Homer Plessy did. The city of New Orleans did. The railroads did. There wasn't genuine adverseness there, and yet they contrived this lawsuit in order to get up to the Supreme Court. You've got the problem of the Supreme Court injecting issues into cases that the parties don't actually want to litigate anymore. You've got precedent that is binding on people who did not participate in the lawsuit. That's been our rule, again, since the inception of the republic. And what's, what's especially interesting here is that precedent can be binding on governmental officials – officials who didn't participate in the lawsuit and yet are expected to abide by that precedent lest they be sued in a damages action for failing to do so. And then we might think about some more controversial ways in which non-parties are bound. We have non-party preclusion. We have parties who are able to take advantage of preclusion non-mutually. And then probably most objectionable to to many people are structural and, um, and prophylactic injunctions. You don't have to agree with all of this. The point is simply descriptive, namely that the judicial power has never been defined solely in terms of dispute resolution. So let me just say a very, very few words, and I, and I appreciate Hans teeing up the issue of Mendoza here, about the narrow situations in which nationwide injunctions should be available. Mendoza actually did not hold that collateral estoppel or issue preclusion could never apply against the government. It delineated a number of situations where it was especially suspect, precisely when you're worried about freezing the law, thwarting percolation, and the like. If, however, those concerns are not actually at hand, then it might be permissible. So the quintessential example, I think, is when you have a government official who is failing to abide by settled law and doing so in bad faith. We point to just one example, Kim Davis, um, the Rowan County Clerk in Kentucky, who even in the wake of the Obergefell decision by the Supreme Court said, "I will not issue same-sex or uh, marriage licenses to same-sex couples." To me, that was an absolute act of bad faith. The judge tried to accord relief only to the parties before him. Kim Davis continued to essentially ignore binding Supreme Court precedent on this issue, and then the judge issued. Um, what is appropriately described as a non-class defendant-oriented injunction. It wasn't nationwide. It was only going to apply in Rowan County, Kentucky. But to my mind, that was absolutely appropriate. And we might think about situations where the law isn't necessarily settled, but it's settled enough. Um, But again, when the Supreme Court has decided an issue, we no longer have the Mendoza concerns. We haven't prematurely frozen the law. There has been percolation. There's no need for the Solicitor General to consider whether to appeal a certain case. This is, to my mind, um, an, an instance in which it absolutely is justifiable. And Thank you very much. I look forward to the discussion.
0: So imagine that you represent Apple. And... You discover that a competitor is infringing on your patents. So you sue, you go to court, and you win. The the court agrees with you that your patents are being infringed. You say to the court, I want you to issue an injunction prohibiting this uh, patent infringement no matter where this defendant does it anywhere in the country. The court will give that to you. Because Apple's rights, which have been adjudicated, the courts determine the defendant's engaging in patent infringement, as long as Apple markets across the country, which it does, as long as the defendant can be reasonably uh, foreseen to engage in conduct across the country, which we'll assume it does, there's no problem with Apple getting a geographically nationwide injunction to enforce its rights. But now imagine Apple comes in and says, Intellectual property is really important to us. We 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 value strong enforcement of intellectual property. This defendant, they're also violating Samsung's patents. They're violating HP's patents. We want you to enjoin this defendant not only from infringing our patents, but from infringing anybody else's patents as well. The court would throw them out. The, the, the such relief would be patently unavailable, so to speak. <laughs> For for a wide variety of reasons, and this is why, as an initial matter, whenever I speak on a panel on nationwide injunctions, one of the very first things I do is complain that you shouldn't call it a panel on nationwide injunctions because the issue isn't the geographically nationwide scope. As many of the previous speakers have alluded to, but I just want to make crystal clear, the debate over nationwide injunctions boils down to to this. When a court is crafting equitable relief, whose rights must the injunction be tailored to enforce, the rights of the particular plaintiff or plaintiffs before the court or the rights of the general public, including the rights of third-party non-litigants not before the court, potentially outside the court's geographic jurisdiction over whom the court potentially might not even be able to acquire personal jurisdiction, constitutional principles, traditional principles of equity, the rules of civil procedure, fundamental fairness concerns, structural considerations of the judicial system, all counsel in favor of the same answer. A court may enforce the rights of the plaintiff before the court and may not unnecessarily expand the injunction to enforce the rights of third-party non-litigants, not before it. Why is that? So uh, my, my, my colleague, Professor Trammell, referred to the issue of of justiciability, of standing. Under traditional notions of standing, a person is permitted to go to court to assert their own rights. There are a few very, very narrow exceptions for what's called third-party standing, where a a person can assert the rights of third-party non-litigants with whom they stand in a special relationship. But the general rule, the default presumptive rule, is that a litigant only has standing to assert and enforce its own rights. And so that is why, under traditional principles of equity, the appropriate relief in the constitutional case is what I refer to as a plaintiff-oriented injunction. It's an injunction tailored to enforcing the rights of the particular plaintiff before the court. So to go back to the to go back to the Texas litigation, to Texas if to Texas argues the expansion of DACA and the implementation of DAPA are unconstitutional, it would be inappropriate for Texas to say. These are unconstitutional. Therefore, you district court strike them down and enter a nationwide injunction across the nation. Right? When a judge strikes down a law, even when a judge holds a law is facially unconstitutional, the judge isn't there in chambers, literally ripping the law out of the U.S. code and throwing it into the fireplace. I mean, some of them might be, but striking down a law, it is a metaphor. It is not something that is literally done. It is a metaphor, simply meaning declining to give a law binding force within the context of a particular case. So Texas can't go to the court and say, strike down the law, therefore enjoin it against anybody. Texas similarly cannot go to the court and say, This law is adversely affecting our rights as a state. It's similarly affecting the rights of all other states. So therefore, enforce the rights of all states throughout the nation, including those that aren't party to the case. Instead, what Texas said and what it is appropriate for Texas to attempt to argue is in order to enforce our rights as an entity, as a litigant, in order to enforce the rights of the plaintiff states before you it is necessary to issue an injunction against this law or, or against this policy, regardless of where it's enforced. And so now the debate is very different. Now we've transitioned from it's, the law is unconstitutional or facially unconstitutional, therefore com, uh, complete a, a, a complete nationwide injunction is necessary. We've transitioned from we have to enforce the rights of all similarly situated entities throughout the nation. Now we have a factual dispute to which both sides can introduce evidence. As a matter of fact, the court can determine, is a complete injunction throughout the nation necessary to enforce the rights of the plaintiffs before before, before us in this case? That is exactly the correct type of inquiry for a court to be engaging in determining the proper scope of injunctive relief. There are fairness concerns that arise with regard to nationwide injunctions particularly because district court rulings generally do not have a starry, decisis effect. That means no matter how many times the government succeeds in upholding a challenged policy, no matter how many times a district court rules in favor of the government, that ruling, in large part due to, due to Mendoza, as it's been implemented in, in, in most circuits, that ruling does not prevent similarly situated right-holders from bringing exactly the same claim, potentially even in exactly the same court, hopefully before a a different judge from, from, from their perspective. And all it takes is a single litigant anywhere in the nation to win one time, and then they're able to obtain effectively nationwide relief, enforcing the rights of all people, throughout the nation. So you have a fundamental asymmetry where the government needs to win everywhere, whereas in order to have a policy or a regulation or an order invalidated, a challenger only needs to win once. And that asymmetry bolsters the notion that nationwide injunctions are an inappropriate form of relief. You have structural considerations about the structure of the federal judiciary. Uh, Going back to 1891, the Efforts Act, Congress deliberately structured the federal judiciary as a hierarchical, decentralized institution where tra- particularly district court judges have limited power, have limited geographic jurisdiction. Even at the circuit level, circuit court, federal court of appeals rulings only have the force of law, only have starry decisis effect within certain geographically limited areas, their respective circuits. For a trial judge to issue a nationwide injunction is to give his or her views, his or her legal conclusions, the force of law throughout the entire nation, including in geographic areas not for, in, in which that judge's rulings do not have any stare decisis effect, and including for litigants who would otherwise be entitled to have their claims adjudicated and to have their rights determined based on the law of other circuits. According to, other, according to other bodies of precedent. Looking at this from, under, from the perspective of the rules of civil procedure, nationwide injunctions give effectively class-wide relief in non-class cases. Rule 23, and in particular, Rule 23B2, was expressly crafted, was expressly added to the rules of civil procedure precisely to avoid this type of relief. Prior to, the, prior to uh, the, the enactment of the modern version of Rule 23 in the late 1960s, the rules of civil procedure used to recognize what were called spurious class actions, which was a class action where the case would be litigated. And then at the end of the case, if the plaintiffs won, then putative class members could decide to jump in and become a party and get the benefit of the favorable ruling. And one of the main objections to spurious class actions was that asymmetry we talked about before, the notion that putative class members could benefit from a favorable ruling, but were not bound, did not have their claims foreclosed by an unfavorable ruling. Not only are nationwide injunctions, defendant-oriented injunctions telling the government, you may not enforce this law against anyone anywhere in the nation. Not only do these provide effectively class-wide relief in non-class cases, but they, in fact, undermine the very purpose of the modern Rule 23b-2 by returning us to this model of spurious class actions. The one final point that, that, that I'll raise, which we haven't discussed, is that nationwide injunctions, particularly when they're affirmed on appeal, we've heard the statistics about how they're becoming routinized. The fundamental constitutional rights of hundreds of millions of people throughout the nation are being flicked on and off like a light switch. An injunction is issued. It gets stayed. The stay gets vacated. Emergency appeal to the Supreme Court. And it's almost like a game. And fundamental constitutional cases that are already important enough, that are already controversial enough, are now being barreled through the judicial system, litigated on an emergency basis before the Supreme Court in case after case, what is supposed to be extraordinary emergency relief from the court is becoming routinized precisely because these nationwide injunctions, particularly when they're affirmed on appeal, force immediate action and force the expedited consideration of often cutting-edge issues, of often quite matters of first impression under the most adverse and unnecessarily expedited conditions you can possibly imagine. So from virtually every possible perspective, from the constitutional perspective, structural, fairness, even pragmatic, nationwide injunctions should not be
2: permitted. All right, so in a moment, I'm going to open it up to questions here. Just raise your hand, and then we'll have somebody with a microphone uh, come up to you. I would uh, ask you to identify yourself, uh, give your affiliation as a courtesy to our speakers, uh, and then this is not your opportunity to join the panel and give a speech. It is your opportunity to ask a very <coughs> short question that is two or three sentences and ended with a question mark. And before I do that, let me just ask if any of our panelists have anything they want to say in response to what it is that they heard. No? Okay. Questions? Down here. Oh, you yeah. Ilya Shapiro with the
0: Cato Institute. Um, I'm wondering whether uh, a standard can be drawn like nationwide injunctions are only appropriate if you're challenging a truly national action or program. So, for example, uh, the travel ban, we can't really have one set of entrance procedures at LAX and another at JFK. With Obamacare, you can't have Schrodinger's individual mandate that's legal in part of the country and illegal in another. On the other hand, something like... Sanctuary cities policies. The grants work differently in different uh, police forces, or what have you, or with um, you know separation at the border. Maybe each individual case is different; needs to be adjudicated individually. Something like that. Again, I have not gone. to... This is this has been fascinating, but I'm wondering if that kind of standard, because I hesitate to say nationwide injunctions are never appropriate and they're always appropriate. I think a lot of people are in that boat. So. I'd offer two responses. The first is you – in many of the the examples that you offered, it actually would be possible to craft plaintiff-oriented relief. So to to take Trump versus Hawaii, for example, a properly formed injunction would not be airport by airport, wouldn't be state by state. It's about the particular travelers. So you have the state of Hawaii, you have a university saying, we have individuals who are being uh, prevented from either giving lectures here or from attending classes here. We have people who we have the right to have come here who are being precluded from doing so. So in a a plaintiff-oriented injunction appropriately tailored to that case would be to say, okay, assuming that they had a valid cause of action, assuming that they won on the merits, a proper injunction would be, okay... For anyone who can show they have a connection to you, for anyone, whether that's they, they file an affidavit, they complete a form, for anyone who has a connection to you because this is your rights being enforced here, they would, be, they would be exempt from the travel ban. It isn't necessary to go beyond the plaintiffs to that case and say, so therefore anyone anywhere in the world can come and go from the United States with, 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 without regard to the ban. The the more general point I would say is, you're right, there will be times when, as a practical matter, it will be very, very difficult or burdensome for the government to try to enforce a policy against some people rather than other people. But I would suggest that is then the up to the government to decide whether, in order to comply with the injunction, it would rather choose as a policy matter to suspend the policy and to suspend enforcement altogether it's not for the court to say well, a properly tailored injunction would be difficult to enforce, so therefore, right out of the gate without even giving you a chance to attempt to enforce it or to decide whether to reshape your policy i'm prophylactically just going to go further than i'm otherwise permitted to and strike down your your policy altogether, the government can already do that. The court doesn't have to force the government's hand in that respect. And,
3: and if I could say something about that, 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 it doesn't resolve the issue of what you do when you have competing federal district court judges issuing uh, opinions that are completely opposite of each other. And the best example of this, and this got almost no publicity, is, look, one of the first injunctions was issued against uh, the, the, the so-called travel ban uh, was a, a federal district court judge in the state of Washington. That got all of the publicity. Uh, uh, everyone covered it. And no one covered the fact that I think it was literally the next day a federal district court in Massachusetts issued a decision that was the exact opposite and who said no injunction is, is appropriate. I don't particularly like this policy, but the president was acting within his uh, legal, uh, his legal uh, ability to do this. And so, you know, the government was faced with what you were saying about having to win every single case, and in here, you had a situation where two actually competing uh, decisions, and yet the injunction was was uh, the one that was going to hold nationwide.
4: Can I just jump in very briefly? I think all of those are among the prudential considerations that courts should consider. Everything that we've been talking about, I would say, is a prudential consideration, which is why I would situate this away from the constitutional debate. A small correction: that um, that decision from the District of Massachusetts was with respect to the second travel ban, and this, I think, is a really critical difference. The first travel ban was blatantly unconstitutional or blatantly illegal as applied to certain persons, in particular, green card holders. There were five decisions; every single judge to consider it recognized that it was illegal. The Trump administration recognized, in short order, yes, it is illegal. They rescinded that, and they changed it. This, to my mind, was the, the situation short of a Supreme Court decision when a nationwide injunction was most appropriate. Because the alternative is forcing every single green card holder to bring his or her own lawsuit. And we don't have a government by litigation. Um, now, when it comes to the second travel ban, and there was not that unanimity, I absolutely agree. Even though the weight of authority was um, was against the legality of the travel ban, the lack of consensus was a problem. And so that should have foreclosed an, another nationwide injunction.
2: Alan, I'm curious, just curious. Do you have any other limiting principles with respect to the kinds of cases that to which you apply to
4: them? Um the, the kinds of cases, um, not necessarily. Um, it, it's usually the posture and the procedural device. So um, we, we haven't talked about the different kinds of injunctions, but to the extent that you're talking about a preliminary injunction, there should be far fewer concerns. So again, let's stick with the travel ban. What essentially courts issuing nationwide injunctions were saying is, let's push the pause button. Before we allow the administration to implement this policy, let's think about whether it is legal. When you have a bevy of decisions saying it's illegal, then it's not resolving the merits. It's not saying that that district court, the Court of Appeals, and ultimately the Supreme Court can't weigh in on the merits. It's simply pushing the pause button. I think that that that's a situation where perhaps we could be a little more comfortable with it, whereas when you are deciding the merits and one judge is enshrining his or her view throughout the country, that should raise more red flags. Hi, Good morning, Uh, William Hahn from Sherman and Sterling. Uh, The first question I had is the relationship between your views on nationwide injunctions and, say, stays, for example. So, like, when if the D.C. Circuit were to stay instead of the Supreme Court staying the implementation of the Clean Power Plan, if the D.C. Circuit had instituted the stay, doesn't that raise a lot of the same kinds of concerns that people seem to have about nationwide injunctions? And then the second question would be. Was Judge O'Connor wrong to stay the implementation of the deferred action program and aspects of the HHS mandate? And was Judge Vinson wrong to uh, rule Obamacare unconstitutional in toto and say that his rule should be treated like an injunction?
1: <laughs>
4: yes, for prudential reasons. <laughs>
3: Yeah, the, 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 the one thing I would say about this is of course the devil is in the details and one thing that we haven't talked about here is the fact that um in in Justice Thomas's concurrence um in the Hawaii case you know one of the things he talked about was the fact that it's up to Congress to decide whether it wants to give the through a statute the power to federal district courts to do this and um there is a stat, there is one statute uh in which some of this kind of behavior is appropriate by federal judges. And that, of course, is the uh, Administrative Procedure Act. Because that act outlines how federal agencies can issue regulations. So if you're suing in the District of Columbia against a federal agency here because you're saying that when they issued a particular regulation that um, uh, accomplishes certain things, that they violate the APA, then you know the judge has got the ability to say This regulation was arbitrary and capriciously issued, and therefore the agency can't enforce it. And I think that's an example of where Congress actually has taken an action. I think it's important for people to understand that um, the the DAPA lawsuit, the Deferred Action uh, for uh, Parents of childhood Arrivals case where an injunction was issued, um, the president didn't actually issue an executive order in that case. He simply directed the Secretary of the, of the Department of Homeland Security to take these actions, and the DHS Secretary actually issued a memo. And the, the heart of the uh, opinion was the fact that um, these procedures, the way they were set in place, actually violated the APA. I, I also want
0: to add, when injunctions aren't the only tool in the court's arsenal. When a district court, when, a, when any, we'll say district court, determines that something, whether it be a policy, a regulation, a statute, is unconstitutional, it can enter an injunction or not, which is enforceable through the contempt power. It, is, it has to issue a judgment, and so it, that the judgment would protect the parties to that case as a matter of race judicata. But then the, the court can also issue, and often in the modern day anyway, does issue an opinion, which is binding on third parties, and this is something that we talked about as a matter of stare decisis. One of the problems from, from this perspective is that district court rulings generally don't have stare decisis effect. And so you were talking about every single green holder having to go to court. Well, part of that isn't, doesn't mean, well, therefore, nationwide injunctions are the answer. One of the things that I've urged revisiting is whether district court rulings should be afforded stare decisis effect, either within the district, at a minimum within that same district, and potentially on a circuit-wide basis, within within the simply because all district courts within a circuit are bound by the law of the same circuit, and so I don't necessarily know that we would have a strong interest in relitigating the meaning of 11th Circuit case law, for example, in Florida and Georgia and Alabama. And so if we were to afford district court ruling starry decisis effect, either on a district wide or a circuit wide basis, we already have a mechanism for enforcing the rights of third party non litigants, which is precisely why this tends often not to be an issue. In uh, APA cases that go to the d c circuit because we have a centralized court that has jurisdiction over many over uh, m- many agency challenges, and so regardless of whether it issues an injunction, regardless of whether it issues a stay, if all and again this isn 't always the case, but for the for the APA challenges that for, over which the d c circuit has exclusive jurisdiction, if the court that 's going to hear all the challenges has decisively and definitively spoken on the issue. Starry Decisis can do the work without having to rely on injunctions yeah,
1: I agree with that completely, and then just on the APA question, I think that there's no there 's certainly no question that Congress could um, Grant the jurisdiction or take away the jurisdiction if it wanted to, to do, to give these nationwide injunctions or to allow district courts to give equitable relief in these broad non class situations. I think with regard to the APA, it's kind of an open question whether the words set aside actually did that work. The DC Circuit has held that they do, but I don't know that that's a settled question nationwide. Other questions? Back here. Um,
2: Hold on. Get a mic, get a microphone coming.
5: So, this is Teresa Manning. We haven't heard many calls uh, for Congress to do something since it falls within their competence to correct this judicial overreach. Any thoughts on why no one has mentioned that?
3: Well, I should mention the House Judiciary Committee actually had a hearing about this last year because I testified (laughs) at that hearing. So, there was certainly concern, uh, at least from what I saw, amongst members of the House Judiciary Committee over this. And the hearing was all about. Uh, hearing from various people with various points of view on what is this a pro- a problem that should be remedied and what's the best way to do it? I
1: would I would say it could it certainly could do that, you know, the the issue then comes up is if they consider it and reject it, does that mean that nationwide injunctions are suddenly uh, lawful and prudential, or does it mean that they just weren't able to get it passed? And I don't don't think you want an inference from the court that because they tried it and weren't able to pass it, that these are, you know, lawful. Other
2: questions? Yes, over here. Um, Hold on.
5: I'm I'm Julie Haller, and I just have kind of a goofy question. When we um, get admitted into each jurisdiction based on your bar and and requirements, uh, reciprocity can be still challenging, even if or they make you take the test again, as you know, when you're a litigator. (laughs) And my question is goofy because we know jurisdiction is so limited when it comes to bar admissions. And could you imagine a nationwide ruling that New York lawyers can go to California or vice versa when it comes to local rules, local practices, et cetera, et cetera? So I know it's it's outside what you're talking about, but I'm just talking about sort of an example of how we work within each jurisdiction.
4: I would say that that points to issues of comity that come up all the time in conflict of laws and in full faith and credit. That's how we normally deal with it, and and quite honestly, that's how we deal with courts that have overlapping geographic jurisdiction. For instance, the D.C. Court of Appeals, uh, the highest local court here, and, and the D.C. Circuit have perfectly overlapping geographic jurisdiction when it comes to weighing in on questions of federal law. And, and they can generate those conflicts unless and until it gets up to the Supreme Court. The most prominent example in recent years was with respect to the constitutionality of the D.C. handgun ordinances. There were, um, there were these conflicting rulings. But those are fairly few and far between. By and large, we rely on Comedy to deal with it.
2: Well, Alan, I can assure you that you were not invited here to be a liberal punching <laughs> <person>. <laughs> No, no, no. And you are welcome here at Heritage. Thank you very uh, much. Uh, and with that, please join me in thanking our speaker.